Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Art of Whatever, and I'm Marcelino. And this is Carlos. And this is Tony. I'll just, I'm not moving <laughs> that. <laughs> it's a marker. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so this is a music and arts-related podcast. Uh, we talk about, you know, certain events, uh, some people, you know, you can interject if you want. <laughs> Oh me? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, this is like. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So we talk about you know certain people. Um, sometimes it's specific people. Sometimes it's um, certain events, and sometimes it's just you know um, maybe a part of someone's life. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, just anecdotes. Uh, I guess um, I don't know if trivia is the word, but you know, uh, minutia. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, we have a we have some trivia, I think. I'd like to believe that we do. Well, yeah, I guess uh, yeah, right away with the first episode, right, like the whole Stravinsky thing. That's a trivia sort of a uh, sort of thing, sort of topic. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think you I think your first one was too. Cuz what was my first one? Oh yeah, the Seljian one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is right. You know what? I was I was listening back to it and I think I messed up a year <laughs> somewhere in there. Yeah, I think well, uh, like the well, very I'm first not... year. But all right. <laughs> I mean, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's. You know what? I, I and I was thinking like, well, because first of all, because I listened to it too, and uh, the audio was real bad. <laughs> Oh really? Damn. I well, at least I think well, so. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's just maybe it was just me just overthinking it. But uh, it was the first one. It was the first one. I, yeah, it was the first one. But I mean, I think I think eventually I want to redo mine again because. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we, you can always take it down and then we can, you know, re-record. Ah, uh, I yeah. I mean, I don't know if I want to take it down again. I just want to. I mean, clearly, obviously, I want to be honest and be like, oh, yeah, I've already done this before, but I want to redo it because I left a lot out. Oh, okay. And so I know that I didn't do it justice. So I see. I so, see. I know, so I know, I know it's going to happen eventually, but um, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I could acknowledge that Tony isn't here right now. <laughs> Do you have any any business up top? Yeah. Mm, I mean, re- not not really, not right now. I I don't think I've seen, you know, like last week with the Super Bowl and then the other week with the Oscars. I don't think I've seen anything or you know anything mm-hmm. that that uh, <laughs> that makes me want to talk about pop culture. <laughs> Not, yeah. Not lately. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess me either. I. Yeah. There's. You know, I I actually was thinking. Um, I I've seen a lot of Valeria's. Um, oh yeah, her stories. Stuff, her. her stories and everything on Instagram. And so I I guess I I just wanted to do kind of like a shout out to her. Not that I'm guessing he's going to hear this. Oh, but. Yeah, but she she doesn't have to know. No, 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 I know, but I mean, yeah. 
Um, no, no, but I just wanted to give her a shout out because, or just to like plug her because I think she's doing, and, and I think we talked about it before that. Um, she like she's if, doing a lot. Yeah, dude, I was like, damn. I mean, I don't know how long she was in New York. To be honest, I think she was there for a while. I, yeah, I think it was like two weeks or something because it was like an intensive, uh, like workshop kind of. Just like I said, I was I saw her and I was just like, wow, like, and and I and she's she's been doing this. So 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 this is um, our one of our classmates from um, Paso Community College um, from a few okay. years ago. Yeah, back in what twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Yeah, and it's funny because because uh, I remember her telling me about uh, when she started school. Uh-huh. She. She told me that her and her sister were basically doing um, the opposite paths of what they're doing now. Okay. I, I don't know if she ever told you that, but but apparently her sister played violin. I honestly I can't remember. Okay. Well, she, that's what, <laughs> well. So yeah. So she. So um. So yeah. So her sister played violin, and she was actually studying music uh, before Valeria, and Valeria was doing math. Okay. Just, I, just, I I think you had mentioned it like last week or the week before. Oh, maybe. Cuz it sounds familiar for some reason. I was going to say math and then you said math and I was like, "Oh, I was right." Oh, uh, yeah, no, yeah. So, yeah, cuz I knew she started she she's she, I think she wanted to go into math um but then I don't remember what happened that <laughs> somehow like throughout those, you know, those years in between that they kind of switched their focuses. Yeah. And Valeria went into music, and I think her sister went into math for some reason. I may be wrong. I don't know, but. No, oh, yeah, but I mean. I, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that they would. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, to go from community college and then getting her, her bachelor's over there in Juarez and then moving to Mexico City with, with like, the... I mean, she might not be in the main company, but she is within the national ballet. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, yeah. from there to jump to New York is like, God damn. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, not that she needs my approval or anything, but I'm actually like very, very proud of her, I guess. No, yes. Because she's, she's doing what i think we all really want to do later on basically just living off of your 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 art mhm yeah and, and she's doing it so yeah exactly yeah so um so yeah so that's that's our yeah our shout out to to valeria valeria chavez uh i can't remember her Insta- <laughs> instagrams no. Yeah, you cut me but, off. Let me let me look it up real quick. It's uh, Valeria C M S C. Okay. <laughs> it is right. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's it. But yeah, so yeah, and I'll probably I'll probably put it somewhere, like in our, I guess in our social media. I don't know. Yeah, we'll for see. sure. Um. So, you know how I've been talking about how, like, I keep wanting to make lists and everything? 
Uh-huh. Well, I finally did. I did a list of topics that I want to do in the future. Okay. And I, but I think I think it's kind of backfired on me because <laughs> it's a lot. No, well, yeah. So now it's just kind of like, oh, well, like, now I have too many topics to talk about or to choose from. And I mean, you know, just go one by one. Pick no. whichever one you want to do the, the most. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I think my issue is that sometimes is that I want to do everything all at once, and I think the other thing is that like if I when I do some sort of um, research on something, then I'll find something else interesting, and I'll be like, oh, like I'll look into that. But I, but I started carrying a notebook with me to just write my lists, especially like if I like if I think about it like. At a random time, like uh-huh. I'll be like, oh yeah, and I have, I can talk about this because usually I forget. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for this episode, uh, now I picked a, a composer, a classical composer. Oh okay. Um, he's a he's a Mexican composer. Oh His okay. Name, his name is Silvestre Revueltas. <laughs> Damn it, that was in my list. Ah, oh, well, see, now you got <laughs> one less. Ha <laughs> ha. We'll see. We'll see who does it better. We'll have a um, a competition uh, of some sort. A revueltas, a revueltas off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, no, no. I'll let you. You'll let me I mean, have it. Yeah, I'll let you have it. <laughs> Uh, my main sources were two documentaries. One, it's uh, under the channel for for the for the university uh, in Mexico City, UNAM. Mm-hmm. Uh, the channel is called TV UNAM, and the documentary is called Silvestre Revueltas Tan Herido por el Cielo y los Hombres. And then my second source is another documentary. And this one is under the channel for Canal 22, which is a sort of a PBS uh, uh, in Mexico City. Oh, yeah. And it's just called Silvestre Revueltas. Well, okay. So, again, Silvestre Revueltas. He was born on December 31, 1899. And he passed away on October 5th, 1940. So he was young. Oh yeah. For some reason, I thought that he died real old. No, I mean, young, forty. He, I yeah. think, he just turned four or close to turning forty. He was born. Well, okay. Just as a disclaimer for anyone that doesn't uh, speak Spanish, some some of the names of the cities might sound weird or funny to you. But he he was born in uh, Durango, the state of Durango, in a city called Santiago Papasquiaro. <laughs> Sorry, I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was born to, uh, his father was Jose Revueltas, and his mom was Romana Sanchez. Mm-hmm. And he had several, well, he had four uh, siblings. 
his he was the I'm sorry, he had three siblings. He was the oldest. Uh, Silvestre, he was a violinist and composer. His brother Fermin was a painter and muralist. His sister Rosaura was a dancer and an actress. Uh, she actually went on to uh, form part of uh, Bertolt Brecht's uh, company. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, she went on to to be part of his his uh, company, and uh, his other sister was Consuelo, uh, who was also a painter. And his youngest sibling was Jose, who was a writer. So they, the whole lot of the family, at least as far as the siblings, they were all you know involved in the arts in some some way or another. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just with the last name like that. Revueltas. Revueltas. It just sounds so, uh, so powerful, I guess. I mean. Yeah, I mean, just his, his, uh, his name, Silvestre. I don't know the exact translation, but I mean, and and it would be sort of, uh, if something is, uh, it's of the wild. And then, well, yeah, um, his, uh, okay, so his uh, mother actually wanted her her children to be artists. Apparently, she had dreams or daydreams about her kids being artists, and she got her wish. All of them became artists in some, <laughs> some way. His, uh, his father, Josue, I mean, Jose, excuse me, senior, he was a, a merchant. He basically, he didn't, he didn't have a, a specific thing, just whatever he could tell he would. Mm-hmm. And they ended up moving places. So, you know, where, wherever he could make a sale, they would move there. So uh, they went mm-hmm. from Durango. They moved to another state called Colima. Then to Guadalajara, and they finally settled in in Mexico City, where he got an actual uh, brick and mortar place to sell his his wares. Uh, Silvestre uh, started violin at the age of six. He started in Durango, and he wherever they moved, his dad made made sure he kept on with his lessons, local teachers, and eventually. He gave his first recital in Guadalajara in a very famous uh, theater still there to this day. It's called the Teatro de Goyado mm-hmm. in uh, 1911. That was his, his first recital. So he was, what, 12? 11 or 12, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is yeah, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> During this time, well, the Mexican Revolution started in 1910, and... Around 1913, the family have, had moved to Mexico City. So the revolution f- went on from 1910 to about 1921. So all his teenage years were spent in uh, revolution-era Mexico mm-hmm. City. So he was really impacted by that. Yeah. Which eventually leads to, to some causes he's going to join. But for now, 
1913, when when they relocate to Mexico City, he joins the National Conservatory of Music. He studies um, he studies there for a while, and eventually in 1917, his dad sends him off to to this side of the border. He sends him to St. Edward's College. And that was in, I don't know if it's still there, but at this time it was in Austin, Texas. Maybe it changed names. Maybe now it's UT Austin. But back then it was called St. Edward's. And it was a partner college with uh, Notre Dame. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he went there from 1917 till 1918, so just a year. And from there, he moved on to Chicago for uh, the Chicago Musical College, which was within the the Art College of Chicago, Art Institute, I'm sorry, of Chicago. And he got his his bachelor's right there in 1919 as a performer, as a violinist. He didn't study composition. He had started to compose kind of but he didn't like anything that he made so he never really went as far as publishing any of his works he just composed to see what he could come up with but apparently he didn't like any of it so he didn't really Mm -hmm. make it public from once he got his degree in 1919 he went back to mexico city stayed there for a while uh he would uh, basically play in street bands anywhere that he could play and his father didn't like that he thought he was getting taken advantage of eventually he ends up going back to chicago in 1922 to uh, keep studying violin um this was with a private teacher now it was a um, polish uh violinist he stayed there from 1922 till 1929, he was on and off. He would uh, live both in Chicago and in Mexico City. Around 19, uh, 1924, I'm sorry, 1923, his father dies. So he goes back to Mexico City to, you know, send off his dad. And since, since his dad was the main provider for the family, now he had to support himself basically again through playing recitals he would play in movie theaters you know providing music for for the silent movies he would play in uh, orchestras or small ensembles you know basically anywhere so that he could make some money to to sustain himself you know what i thought it was interesting right now we say um I thought the word huesear uh, in, in Spanish is slang for, uh, you know, going to, to, I guess, sit in, to play a gig. And that was the word they, I mean, it was in use back then as well. So the the word is way older than I thought it was. Yeah, yeah the word? The word huesear, like as in, yeah, like, like bones, like hueso. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I, yeah, so it's I, Spanish for it's Spanish for bones, or bones. Yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That's why I didn't want to translate it. 
But okay. I'm, I'm guessing it had to do more with, uh, I mean, I'm almost sure it was in a pejorative kind of way, you know, because it was I'm pr- musicians, you don't make that much money. So, you know, probably like your ribs are showing because you're not eating well. So, okay. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. <laughs> I mean, that's all conjecture right now, but I'm almost, uh-huh. I'm almost sure that's why. Uh-huh. And... Uh, <laughs> We'll leave that joke in the air for whoever gets it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he ends up going again on and off uh, back to Chicago. Then in 1924, goes back to Mexico City. He uh, meets another young composer. His name is Carlos Chavez. Um, mm-hmm. And in that same year, he... he um, he listens to the premiere of Rhapsody in Blue, and um, all these things start um, kind of setting him in, in the path to to finding his own voice in a sense of realizing the things he can he can do and what he has to offer within the music he plays. So Revueltas and Chavez they kind of make a, um, a duo of sorts and an intellectual duo of sorts. They start mm-hmm. uh, playing concerts with music uh, by Debussy, Stravinsky, Schoenberg. It was, you know, I mean, it was cutting edge music back then. And oh, yeah. <laughs> especially, yeah, especially in Mexico City, you know, they were, I guess, like, uh, like any young musician you're like ah it's boring here let's get some of this new edgy stuff in (laughs) (laughs) i think it was during the time where a lot of more as i and i think in mexico like a a lot of more like younger composers were starting to like be more active it's a whole revolution thing you know because once the revolution started then the same thing started happening and and uh edu- education reform and a lot of artists like all the all the 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 murals the famous murals they're all basically sponsored by the government uh that was set up post-revolution they were mm-hmm. very pro-artists the the um, government offices especially for culture were were occupied by artists yeah, because I think I remember this is also the time during Frida Kahlo, right? Yeah, I think I think they come, yeah, well, around there. Yeah, all that whole thing. I mean, Revueltas, uh, Kahlo, uh, uh, Diego Rivera, Siqueiros. Um, I mean, it's it was a whole uh, wave of people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And there... Um, there are two documentaries that I got a, a huge chunk of my information from. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're both in Spanish documentaries. One is called, um, well, it, it doesn't really have a title. It's more, uh, it's just Silvestre Revueltas. Um, and it's more of a, um, well, a report, actually. <laughs> it's just this one is an hour, it's an hour-long report. Uh-huh. And the other one is called um, 
It's a, it has a really dramatic name. It's uh, Tan Herido por el Cielo y los Hombres. So, basically translates to um, So Hurt by <laughs> by the Heavens and, and Men. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can check them out on YouTube if you type uh, Silvestre Revueltas uh, documentaries and, and you'll get them, uh, both of them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But when they're talking about the uh, about uh, Revueltas and Chavez uh, starting to play Debussy and Stravinsky, um, they have a uh, one of his daughters who who was still alive at the time of the documentary. She mentions that there was probably around 20 people in attendance, and and like 19 of them walked off because they didn't oh. like the they didn't like the music oh no <laughs> so you know it wasn't it wasn't a big hit yeah but and then again he goes back to chicago he moves for a period to uh to um san antonio goes and teaches at the college there gives classes again he just plays you know concerts recitals joins small groups just to keep on on uh on going and during that time when he wasn't working he was usually studying scores and uh and uh, conducting other people's music and again this just kept them going on a path where he started becoming more confident in what he could and couldn't do so eventually in 1929 still this is still before the 30s yeah this is still before the 30s oh shit i did <laughs> yeah so, so from, from 1922 till 1929 he was on and off on and off um uh-huh. mexico city chicago mexico city chicago mexico city chicago so he would uh you know he would do lots of stuff wherever he could and Eventually, in 1929, he goes back to Mexico definitively. He goes back partially because his friend Carlos Chavez starts a national orchestra, and he invites him to be a part of it. Eventually, Revueltas becomes the the auxiliary conductor and uh, director for the orchestra. And right there is when, now that he's part of the orchestra and in charge of it, both of them, Chavez and Revueltas, besides keep uh, keeping on on playing, you know, Debussy, Schoenberg, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. they start using the orchestra to play their own works. He, besides the director of the orchestra, Chavez, uh, now he's he's one of the heads of of one of the culture departments at the university. So he, at the conservatory, and he gives Revueltas the teaching position as a main violin professor mm-hmm. at the conservatory. So he, Revueltas finally settles in, and in 1930, that's when his prolific actual period of composing starts. He has uh, like a lot of work that he composed in, in, in those 10 years. He has quartets, string quartets. He has ballets, um, tone poems. 
he mainly composed shorter pieces. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't. He didn't do. He didn't write symphonies. He didn't write operas. But um, he did write a, a lot for for uh, movies and shorter works, shorter, um, smaller ensembles. In in um, 1933, he joins, which translated to English would be the the League of Revolutionary Artists and Writers, and he ends up resigning his posts at the conservatory. Oh. oh. Partly because. Chavez at the time, in 1933, he was working on a movie called Redes. He was working uh, on writing the score for the movie, along with the director. But Chavez gets uh, gets uh, taken off his position, and there's a new director of uh, cultural affairs. And that person decides that Chavez Chavez's music shouldn't be in the movie and gives the the, the score over to Revueltas. Oh. So this was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back for their friendship oh, between no. Chavez and Revueltas. Yeah. So <laughs> so Revueltas ends up doing ends up doing the score for the movie. The movie's called Redes. Uh, it's basically a um, a movie with a um, communist message, not in a negative sense, but in the sense that it's about fishermen uh, being taken advantage of by basically big government and how they all unite to not topple the government, but fight it in a way that, you know, lets them keep their... their uh, autonomy in a sense yeah yeah and the work itself is called redes that was his first uh, big score he went on to write scores for for i mean various movies he has two or three besides redes that are famous once he joins the the league of uh, revolutionary writers and artists that's when he starts really delving into social causes. And in 1936, he composes one of his masterworks, considered by many one of his masterworks. It's called Homenaje a Federico García Lorca, or Homage to Federico García Lorca, who was a uh, Spanish poet. Spanish. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, know, I know of him, at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, by this point, he had been already uh, killed by the the fascist. Uh, it wasn't a regime then. It was they were still going through a civil war, but yeah. the fascist forces under Francisco Franco. Um, and he was basically, I mean, well, part of the reason he was uh, he was killed was because, besides speaking against the government, he was gay. Mm-hmm. And at the time, as we all know, that was a big, a big no-no. Yeah. <laughs> but 
but yeah, 1936, he composes the piece. And in uh, 1937, the um, a contingent of, of the league goes over to Spain to premiere some works of Revueltas and to have uh, some of the other artists and writers, uh, one of whom is uh, Octavio Paz, a famous Mexican writer and, and Nobel, Nobel Prize winner. They go over to Spain in an effort to support the Republican uh, side of the Civil War. The Republicans in Spain, they were the pro-democratic side where the uh, the franquistas were the fascists they go he premieres the work in spain uh, he premieres other works and in one of the documentaries there uh, basically the the story that's told in the documentary is told from the diary of one of the the women that went as part of of the league and she talks a lot about how Re Revueltas really wanted to go to the combat zones. I mean, they were there during the war, but, you know, they were uh, taken towards the, the last, uh, less conflictive side. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But Revueltas really wanted to go and fight, and basically no one would let them. <laughs> <laughs> so the sad part of it is that since he couldn't go fight, he was he really felt that music, the music he was there to promote wasn't really helping out in any way. And he he makes comments. He's like just in in uh, disdain. He's like, oh, this this little music we do serves no purpose. And uh, basically, he wants to go fight, but since no one else besides him wants to or lets him, he he just drinks himself to a stupor while he's there. He's always drunk. He's always uh, in a in a bad mood. Eventually, after they do premiere some of his works, apparently that um, the woman whose uh, diary they're reading as part of the documentary, she had to stay with him at the piano until he he actually composed part of the music that they were going to premiere. <laughs> because he, he just wouldn't do it. He didn't want to do anything. And so eventually concert goes well. He receives good uh, criticism from from the people in Spain. They end up going back to Mexico, and once he goes back to Mexico from Spain, since he split with Chavez, he doesn't have his position anymore as far as the, the university, the conservatory. He doesn't have uh, any contacts, really. So he basically lives in relative poverty, uh, but he does end up composing two more of his what are considered major works for him he the main one would be called Sensemaya which oh, yes. translates um, roughly to it's it's uh, based on a Cuban poem 
mm-hmm. about how to kill a snake, and basically yeah. that's what the composition represents. But it's, again, it's short. It's about 15 minutes long, tops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's like the that I think that's the only work that I've ever like truly listened to of his. Yeah, well, yeah, just because it's the most popular. Yeah, it's, well, and actually, I think it was in Sin City. Oh, really? Like the movie? I, yeah, yeah. I think really? it was in the part of the soundtrack. Uh huh. Oh, I didn't know that either. Had no idea. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's in City. You know, it, I'm gonna say it is. Movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. But it's yeah, not it, it's, in the movie, right? I think it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm getting. Now I'm curious. <laughs> no, right. no. I, I really, I really think that's it. I, I really think it was. Huh. I had no idea. And it's. I think I saw the movie like. You know, four months ago, and I. Pfft. Unless I'm thinking of a different movie, but I think that's what it is. The Robert Rodriguez one, the one in black mm-hmm. and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out too. Yeah, because I I I wanna say that's true. because uh, I could have sworn I saw it. Uh, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. What? I'm gonna have to yep. check. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, Sensamaya, he basically wrote two versions of it. He wrote one for. For a small uh, 10-piece orchestra or group, and he wrote an actual full orchestral version. Mm-hmm. Um, Sensamaya, I mean, if you go on YouTube and write Sensamaya, you're gonna find a ton, a ton yeah. of uh, of symphonies and and conductors um, performing the piece. And um, in 1939. He uh, composes the last of his, uh, what's con- what are considered his masterworks. He composed uh, La Noche de los Mayas, which would be translated to The Night of the Mayas. Mm-hmm. He composes it after the death of his mother. And, oh. and by this point, he he's not really making much money. He spends a lot of his day drinking um, and just uh, walking around the streets and, you know, sort of, uh, well, I guess talking to himself, you know, just just going on rambling. In 1940, he was working on an unfinished work. Let me get the name of it. I had it right in front of me. Okay, got it. So in 1940, he was working on a piece called La Coronela, and it was going to be for a stage play. But um, in October uh, 5th, the 5th of October, 1940, he dies. He dies of uh, pneumonia. He apparently... Besides the pneumonia itself, it was mostly the drinking that got to him, and the pneumonia was just the the finishing blow. 
Yeah. Apparently he suffered from uh, depression from a very early age. And, uh, I mean, back in those times, you know, it wasn't as uh, detectable or as treatable as it is now or viewed the same as it is now. Well, so, even now, sometimes. Yeah. And he had basically turned to drinking during his early 20s, and he just kept going. But there's a story, on again, on one of the documentaries that... His daughter's a writer, too. Or, yeah, I guess like like uh, her uncle. She's a writer, and she tells a story that he was walking down the street, and he saw a homeless guy, and the homeless guy asked him, hey, I don't have a coat, and it's cold. Can you give me your coat? And so, and apparently that's the night that he, you know, caught pneumonia. Oh, no. And eventually passed away. Oh, and on that day that he passed away, they were premiering one of his works at, uh, at Bellas Artes, which, I mean, I guess you would, would translate as the Palace of Fine Arts. Yeah. But yes, that same day he died, they, they were uh, premiering one of his ballets. And oh. he, uh, he was... Uh, he was at the well. The body was uh, kept at the conservatory for for a couple of days, just so people and students could pay their respects to him. And um, eventually, he was buried. And as far as revueltas, that's you know that's the story of his life. But. Um, What's interesting and or sad is that the, that generation of uh, people and composers, they tried, you know, um, move, moving the musical front forward. But really after them, there was no... no there was no next generation, you know. There, there, there definitely are composers, mm-hmm. even now, but there was no, no wave like there had been. With yeah. That. And uh, just as a small point of reference, um, his his style was. He's most of the time. If you see comparisons, he's. You, you'll see written something around the lines of the Mexican Stravinsky or especially with Sensei Maya. Yeah. But he had an affinity for for rhythm, which I guess that's part of, of why um, they compare him with Stravinsky. He had an, an affinity for syncopated rhythms and for non-tonal harmony, again, along the same lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he really had a passion for Debussy, and he, uh, in, in while well, digging up the information for the report, 
all the people interviewed make it very clear that he wasn't a nationalist composer, that he didn't quote um, regional melodies. They make it clear that he's a Mexican composer, that you can tell he has the folklore in him, but he doesn't outright start playing, uh, you know, some... some uh, a tonal version of La Cucaracha, or... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so no, I get, yeah, I get that. It's mostly about, uh, I guess, um, sort of being being in the culture so, so deeply that whatever you compose bears that imprint, even if it's not outright telling you, hey, look at me, I'm Mexican, I'm Mexican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And because because I think because I think on the other on the other side of that, I think Carlos Chavez was kind of the opposite. Yes. Yeah, he was he was basically a, a nationalist composer who wrote uh-huh. and did quote um, themes of, of Mexican uh, folk music. Yeah. But. Again, basically, after this this crew of, of musicians and intellectuals, as far or I guess as far as classical music, there was really no no second wave. Um, and popular music, I mean, I'm sure we all know the names and and could mm-hmm. talk about songs, but as far as classical music, this was the um, most uh, progressive. And at the same time, uh, acceptable uh, movement of the time. I'm sure there are more progressive composers since then, but I mean, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. The, uh-huh. the sort of impact these these guys had. Wow. But not, but not to leave on a downer note. I mean, if okay. you want to look up the performances of Sensemaya. I mean, I guess the most popular right now it's the the one by with uh, Gustavo Dudamel. The one I I saw have the most positive, uh, <laughs> not reviews but comments was one by uh, Leonard Bernstein, and that was from back in 19. I think I think the date on his on it was 1940 around 40s or 50s. So that's I mean. To have a work performed that close to to the actual uh, publishing of the work and the actual, mm-hmm. you know, I mean that that must have been a, a feat in itself. Yeah, yeah, and to be revered as such. Yeah, and especially by someone as big as Bernstein, because you yeah. know he's, he's like God to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's basically it. That's my report. Oh. Well, cool, man. That, that was that was a good one. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, I guess I should just talk about mine now, <laughs> just to get it out yeah. of the way. Let's do it. Okay. <clears throat> so for this week, I am doing something a little bit different, and I kind of told you about it already. <laughs> um, I will be getting away from the West. Um, to Asia 
I I will so I will be talking about um the former king of Thailand. His name is King uh, Bumipom Adulyate, also known as Rama the Ninth. Oh, ew, that was too formal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. So I got a lot of my information um from Wikipedia as well, but I also looked at this or History Channel documentary. Uh, it's called uh, King Bumipom uh, of Thailand, and and also there is a documentary about him, which is completely in Thai. <laughs> so I had to read a lot of uh, subtitles, but yeah, it's called Giti um, uh, Rajan. That's the that's the name of the documentary, and it just kind of talks about um, specifically like his works. Before I start, I feel like I should talk about a little bit about Thailand. Um, it's just going to be a really quick, like, really quick, quick, quick history on it. Um, so Thailand, or the kingdom, or what is known as the kingdom of Thailand, um, has about 65 million people for its population, and it's the second biggest Buddhist country. Um, it is bordered by Laos and Cambodia on the east, and Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, on the west, and... It's in the Southeastern Asian Indochine Peninsula. Um, has very hot and humid climate, and it's perfect for its main export, which is rice. And also farming, just in general. Um, from 500 to 550 AD, uh, it was known as... There was, there was a... Uh, what's the Funan Empire that was there? Um, it was kind of like the earliest known settlement that was far in the on the south of the peninsula. And then came the empire of Sukhothai, which reigned from 1238 to 1583. Damn. Um, yeah. And then it became known as Uyataya, um, also known as uh, the Kingdom of Siam, or I believe it's pronounced Siam, 1448. And that's what it was called by, like, the West, especially, you know, through its Portuguese, like, trade and everything. Um and around 1782, uh, the Chakri dynasty became the ruling dynasty with Rama the first as their as their ruler, and that's what the current um, dynasty is today. So they've been around for yeah for a while. In 1993, there was a bloodless coup, um, which uh, made the made the kingdom or I guess the country. It took it from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy, and um, during World War, yeah, during World War II, um, Japan invaded Thailand um, a few hours after Pearl Harbor. But they didn't. <laughs> oh, so this is another fact about Thailand. Um, it was actually one of the very few countries that was not colonized by um, by Europe by any European country. Um, oh. Yeah, so it was that one. So it was Thailand, uh, China, and I believe Korea. Um, at least in Asia. There was a few others around the world, but those are the ones that I know that are in Asia. Um, but instead of being invaded, they decided to side with the Japanese and granted them access so that they could go through land to uh, invade Burma. But I don't know, I thought it was interesting. Um and yeah, I mean, those are just like little facts about it. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the king. He was born in December 5th, uh, 1927, which was actually the year that my my grandma was born. 
and I didn't know how to ask this question because I thought it was very interesting. But I guess I'll ask it like this. Where do you think he was born? I mean, he wasn't born in Thailand. <laughs> no. In uh, fact, he was the, he was the only royal. He's been the only royal that hasn't been born in that was not born in Thailand. I mean, just just my gut tells me to say uh, like Britain, the UK, somewhere in the UK. No. Oh, uh, then then I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he was Do born. Keep guessing. Uh huh. No, 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 no. Um, he was actually born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. What? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's funny because in his actual birth certificate, his name is officially Baby Sanclan, uh, which isn't his name, obviously. <laughs> but um, the form, the king at the time, who was his uncle, I believe. So basically, I guess the rule is that they had to, um, the king had to name the baby. But at the time, they weren't with the king. So they had to normal, formally put his name as Baby Song, Songkla. So his name isn't even on his birth certificate. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, he was the youngest son of Prince Mahido uh, Adulyade. And uh, at the time, um, he was actually studying at Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, he was studying medicine. And um, that's where he met his... Um, his wife, his, well, his future wife, I couldn't find any, like, real, like, full name of her, uh, but they just called her Mom Sangwan. Um, and she was a commoner, and it wasn't controversial, but, I mean, um, he wanted to marry her, even though she wasn't a royal. Um, uh, was she uh, from Thailand as well? Or? Yeah, yeah she, was, yeah, she was from Thailand. Um, and she was there studying nursing. So that's how they met. Um, yeah, they were, yeah, he was going to Harvard. Um, so yeah, like I said, he was the, he, he's been the, um, he was the only, um, royal that wasn't born in Thailand, at least at the time, I'm guessing. I don't know, I don't know if it's happened since, but yeah. Uh, and he had, he, like I said, he was the youngest and he had two older siblings. His oldest sister, uh, Princess Guy... Galyani Badana and his older brother Prince Ananda Mahido. Um, so both of the princes, so the brothers, um, were actually very close growing up. Okay, so like I said, the prince gets married in Thailand, but they move back to uh, Boston so that way he can finish his um, his studies and everything. Um, and they live there for about eight years after like they get married. Um, I think, hold on. Wait, the numbers don't add up. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Well, maybe I, I'll take that out. I'll take the eight years out. But yeah, so he was, um, so they go back to Boston, like I said, um, and um, so that he could finish. Yeah, so he finishes in 1928. So that was a year after he was born. Uh, but unfortunately, he dies. Um, his father dies a year later in 1929 from kidney failure. And in 1933, their mother moves moves them to um, to Lausanne, Switzerland, so that they could study. And and like I said, and one of the things that, like I said, they studied was music. So yeah, she she wanted to give them um, a very normal life, um, the princess or his sister, I guess. 
said at one point that, you know, like, um, there's obviously there's no royal um, family in Switzerland, which basically made everyone, like, all of them commoners. They kind of grew up knowing, obviously, that they were royal people, but they they were very much um, domestic. They, they had to do everything that everyone did, like do chores, um, earn their own money. So, like, anything any of us would have done, you know, as kids, basically. Sorry, to, how did, I mean, were they still, even though the actual prince died, the family still kept her as, as well, yeah, as part of the family, or of the royal family? Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, they had, I mean, they still had, they still had children. Well, no, yeah, I mean, but, you know, like, like the thing that happened with the, the who was it? The, the brothers and that uh, Meghan Markle. Oh, Harry. Like, yeah, that they're not they're not royals anymore. Well, I mean, I think they chose to not be royals anymore. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it wasn't it wasn't anything that had to do with like the rules or anything. It was just they decided not to be. <laughs> okay, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, and that's where the that's where the controversy is, I guess, because. You know, I think he was going in that direction anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so who knows? I mean, who knows what would have happened? I don't know. <clears throat> I mean, but they still get, like I said, they still kept their royal status. Um, the king was their, their uncle. So that was, you know, that was going on over there. Um, let's see. In 1934, he receives his very first camera. And that's actually a... A big part of his um his I guess I guess persona in a way because <laughs> um, uh, throughout his life he carries his he carries a camera with him wherever he goes and and he takes pictures of everything um and eventually like once he becomes king like he he does a lot more of that with pictures and stuff so his uncle in 1935 um abdicates the throne. So he basically just, I guess he's just like, I don't want to be king anymore. I don't know. Yeah. So, so the next in line is his older brother, um, which is Anandan, but he's nine at the time. Wow. Yeah. Um, so he becomes the new king, and he's known as Rama the Eighth. Every um, king um, becomes a, a a Rama, basically. So okay. it just goes from like the first, the second, the third. So oh, um, I see. And yeah. So, okay. So or like, uh, you know, because like we know Genghis Khan, right? But then Genghis was his name, but Khan was the title. So after him, there was another, you know, uh, insert blank here, Khan. Edward Khan. I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Edward <laughs> Khan. You know. I mean, Khan I guess that. I guess that's how it works. I mean, like I said, I'm not sure, but uh, well, I, I mean, I guess it's a title. Yes, yeah. Let's just oh, leave it okay. at that. <laughs> yeah, let's just leave it at that. So yeah, so he becomes Rama the Eighth, but his family still remains in Switzerland for their whole childhood, so that way they can keep studying and everything. And in 1942, that's when his, um, I guess, his fascination with uh, music begins. And that's when he starts playing the sax, and um, he starts studying and everything, and 
he listens to a lot of jazz. But again, like um, like I said, um, their mother is just very like, if you wanna, you know, if you wanna buy your own instrument, if you wanna buy your own music, you have to do it yourself, you know. So like I said, he primarily played the saxophone, but he also played the trumpet, trombone, clarinet, guitar, and piano. Uh, he focused a lot on classical music for two years at the beginning, but later his focus went to jazz. He actually performed with Benny Goodman um, in the in the um, Satan Residence Hall, which is in Thailand, and it's a part of like the royal household, I guess. And also with the uh, preservation, yeah, yeah, the preservation hall jazz jazz band um, from. New Orleans. Yeah, New Orleans. Yeah. And he and also Benny Carter, who was also a big influence as well as um, Louis Armstrong. Them two and um, Sidney Bechet, I believe that's his last name. Yeah. yeah. And Johnny Hodges. Yeah. So I mean, those are the names <laughs> that I saw. <laughs> In June 9th, nineteen forty-six. Um, this is like the biggest like turning point in his life um because his brother who's the king dies mysteriously from a gunshot whoa yeah and um and nobody really knows what happened i think the um official report on it was that it was a suicide but um I mean, it was a gunshot to the head, but specifically it was the forehead. Um, so that sounds <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, and and so like it's just it's just very mysterious. But like, it, I mean, like like I said, that's what's reported. But they actually think that it was an assassination uh, because of the way that um, uh, he was shot. That it was kind of, it would have been hard for him to shoot himself. Because um, normally, like, when you shoot yourself, like, in the head, I guess, like, it's either the mouth or your side of the head, you know? I don't know. <laughs> I've never done it. I know, right? Um, but, uh, and this was, like, four days before he was supposed to return to Switzerland to finish his doctoral degree. At 20, he was already a doctor? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Holy Isn't that crazy? God. Yeah, dude. Like, at two. At 20, you're like on your, probably starting your third year, if you go right away, like if you start right away. Yeah, 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 and and I'm guessing it was because like, I mean, I mean, like you said, they were very, they were very much into science, at at least, at least Bumipan was, I don't know about Ananda, Um, the older brother, I don't know if he was, he was very much into it. But I and I actually don't know exactly what he was going for his like what his doctoral degree was in. Um, but still, just the fact that he was doing it. <laughs> yeah, no. Shit. Yeah. Um. So like I said, the theory. So there was a few theories. It was that was one of them. The other one. Um. The other one was that two um palace aides, um, were the ones that were kind of in cahoots, and were were the ones that assassinated him um and but they actually got convicted and got executed for it so which is which is weird because like 
like I said, even though that it was reported or it was it was said that it was a suicide, um, these two people were still charged for it. Um, but there's a third theory, which I don't personally believe, honestly. Um, and I don't think it's very much believed anywhere or by anyone. But the third one was that um, it might have been his brother that did it by accident. Because apparently um, they were very big um, gun enthusiasts. And it said that it was probably like, it might have been accidental. Maybe it had to be covered up or whatever, but I don't believe it. Because they were very close to begin with. Um, I don't know. But I like I said, I don't believe it. So he goes into um, a hundred day um, uh, mourning thing. And then he becomes... Uh, and then he's crowned a few months later. So yeah, so so he just kind of goes on um, studying and everything. So he studies law and political science, um, and I and that's what like his I guess his main degree was in. Uh, and studying in Switzerland, he goes to Paris a few times where he meets his future wife, and her name is Sidikit uh, Kitiyakat. Kara, um, who was the daughter of a Thai ambassador in France, and who was also the great-granddaughter of King Chulalongkorn, who was known as Rama V, which kind of made him distant cousins, but, I mean, that's whatever. <laughs> I mean, there was, what, you said there was, like, five, no, wow, like, four kings before? Uh, there was eight kings before him. Oh yeah, so oh, he becomes yeah, so he becomes Rama the Ninth. So so there was eight kings before him, yeah. I I think that's you know far enough to not be. Yeah, I think so. Like yeah. any blood stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah. Uh, and at the time she was, uh, I guess the time when she met him or he met her, she was fifteen and she was actually training to be a concert pianist. So. Uh, during his time, like in Paris, or I believe it was in, in still in Switzerland, he um, he has uh, he suffers an accident, a car accident. His mother kind of tells uh, um, his future wife, basically to just kind of stay around and kind of get to know him, and you know, and all that. Um, and they get married. Um, they have a quiet engagement. Okay, so so he, his coronation is on May fifth, nineteen fifty. Um, but, uh, they actually get married, um, April the 28th, or a week before, a week before the coronation, they get married in a, in a quiet ceremony. <laughs> and I thought it was funny that, cause, cause I put this, uh, um, their wedding was described by the New York Times as, quote, the shortest, simplest royal wedding ever held in the land of gilded elephants and white umbrellas, end what? quote. What gets me more is like, what was the New York Times and like what? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but I mean, I think at this point he had like he had made a big, he had made kind of an impact. I don't know. I mean, so they were like, a, they were celebrities. Um, not not I don't think yet, because oh. it was still it was still a developing country. Okay. During this time too, at least an industrial like nation let's see and so in 1956 
he enters the monkhood for 15 days. And, um, and I'm not sure if he's the one that started this or if this was a thing before, but basically in, um, in Buddhism, well, okay, so in Thailand, from what I know, is that um, uh, every man that's a Buddhist has to go into monkhood for a certain amount of time. And I think it's their choice how long they go into it. Uh, so they can go for like, you know, a few days or they can go years. But everyone has to do it. So it's like uh, military service in yeah in Mexico. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, so like everyone will do it um, at some point in their life. Like it doesn't have to be at any specific time. It could just be whenever. Um, in 1959, that's when he took up painting. Seriously. And um, a lot of times he painted um, painted uh, portraits of his wife. And he did, I mean, he did a lot of things, like I said. It was, um, he also did a lot of environmental things um, having to do with, like, the land and nutrition and soil conservation. Um, and that was very um, nurtured by his mom when he was a little kid because um, a lot of the times, like, she would have them playing outside, but um, a lot of the playing was also learning. So, like, um, as kids, they would, like, build, like, trenches and everything or, like, make irrigation systems. Um, but it was all through play. So, you know, they made it fun or whatever. And so, like, his his mother was very big on that. Um, so a lot of – so some of the things that he, like – so through, I guess through, through land conservation – um or just conservation in general uh he he started um fish breeding uh the cultivation of different types of rice he also did he started this um one thing that was very um very new at the time which was called rape it's just rain making in 1969 and eventually it's it, essentially it was just like uh planes going around and I, and I guess that's what, like, we see even today, you know, how, like, planes, like, have those chemtrails or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it, so it's kind of something like that. So, like, they would go and, like, um, I guess let out chemicals out in the air, like, with the with, in the sky and everything, which would make it rain. What? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so a lot of the, so a lot of the people in Thailand were, like, very, very much appreciative of him, um, because uh, they did have a lot of droughts. They had a lot of very crazy... Um, I mean, still to this day, they have a lot of crazy weather. Because um, they have to deal with droughts, like, in the inland. And they also have to deal with um, um, floods. Like, especially, like, in the... Um, like, out in the coasts. Um, which actually prompted him to create this one project called the Monkey Cheek Project. Okay. Um, yeah, so basically it's that started from when he had a uh, when he when he was a kid, he had a um a pet monkey and he would notice that uh the monkey would like put like food in his cheeks so that way he could like keep it and everything. And so they began this like um system where they built a lot of dams and everything. And so, like, all the water that would, like, be flooding, like, Bangkok, per se, 
would be uh would run into these places that would just get filled up and everything and eventually that would be laid out into the ocean yeah but i think they were put like throughout the cities like there would be like a lot throughout like everywhere i guess so that way there would the water would accumulate there and then like i said and so yeah so he was very very much about like like i said the environment um and about his people um so like it was tradition that like whenever um like a king would come near them or whatever like the people would obviously like kneel on the ground and everything um but like the royals weren't allowed to touch them because like there was essentially like a hand of like not a god per se but like a descendant from a god stuff like that but he kind of changed that like um so he mm-hmm. was like one of the first people to actually like just be like you know like shake hands with people or like touch them on the head or whatever which is um i think that's a maybe not the head because i think the head is a uh a, a sacred thing for, for for people i don't know but just yeah but just like physical contact like he started doing that uh, and, and so like the people loved him like i said but there was also like stuff that he was criticized on and one of them was the war on drugs <laughs> during 2003 um and usually the war on drugs is kind of a very um touchy subject i guess because um there's so many cons and pros and everything and at least you know just just from what i guess what we've experienced and everything like I don't know. I'm not going to get into that because that's controversial subjects. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so during, yeah, so during his birthday um, in 2005, he gave a speech. And he invited to, he basically invited people to criticize him. And in his speech, he said, quote, actually, I must also be criticized. I am not afraid if the criticism concerns what I do wrong, because then I know. Because if you say the king cannot be criticized, it means that the king is not human. If the king can do no, no wrong, it is akin to looking down upon him because the king is not being treated as a human being. But the king can do wrong. And um, and there's this uh, <laughs> there's this law that uh, that has been around I guess forever, and it's called the um, uh, lesser majesté and basically it means that like um, no uh, king or queen can be criticized publicly or else there you know there's there's a punishment or whatever and you can be punished by death or whatever um, and that rule was has been implemented even to this day like it's implemented there and so um, obviously there was criticism before that and whatever um uh but because because he made this statement um the cases for this rose from five to six a year well that's what it was before 2005 but after that um they started to be more for more to like the point of like hundreds uh of cases of this happening i don't know if that makes sense i don't know if i'm making sense at all so so when he invited people to criticize him that was just like a one-time thing or well i mean i i think he had the the idea like 
he really wanted it to be a thing. Like, that was a true invitation, but since this law was still in effect, or is still in effect, it still applies. So, it was kind of, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. Like, who enforces that law? You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure about that. It's just, I mean, I just know that it's just the law. <laughs> yeah. Well, which which kind of sucks. I mean, because I mean, if if the king is the one telling you, oh, you can do this, like do this, but then you still get reprimanded for it. Yeah, <laughs> kind of exactly. Sucks. Okay, so I've talked a lot about him. Um, so uh, so let me talk about a little bit of um some of his music. Um, so one of his first known compositions is called um the Sang Tiang or also known as the Candlelight Blues, when he was 18. Um, this is actually his most popular work. But the first work that actually became public is called Yam Yin, which I guess translates to Love at Sundown. Are these uh, on piano or or for uh, combos? I think, it's, I think they're for combos. Uh, I mean, he did a lot of his compositions on the piano, um, but I mean, I think they're intended to be more for combos. Uh, another one of his popular works is called Siphon or Falling Rain. So yeah, he composed about 49 works, including waltzes, marches, classical works. And he also wrote, um, five songs, which are like a part of a, um, I guess a group, the five love songs, which he dedicated to his wife, Sirekit. Uh, and they're called Echo, Still on My Mind, Old Fashioned Melody, No Moon, and Dream Island. Um, and I think these were one of the few songs that were actually translated into English. Um, let's see. He also wrote the Royal Marines March, which was the official march of the Royal Thai, uh, of the Royal Thai Marine Corps. He, yeah, he proposed a charity one year um, where they would sell like you know um, 50 cent tickets. At a, a piece. So to anyone that wanted to come to this charity, in one of the events, he um, he um, had his uh, his convo play one of his compositions, and he wanted everyone to guess the name of it. And he gave him the initials, and the initials were H M B. And so like they played it and everything. And um, at the end, so he wanted them to to figure out what the initials were. And almost everybody, <laughs> almost everybody guessed that it was called His Majesty's Blues. Okay. <laughs> but it wasn't. Um, it was actually called uh, Hungry Man's Blues. Um, oh, and I should have written it down because there was a reason for it. Because basically, like, um, it had to do with like jazz musicians that were always hungry, something like that. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm going back a little bit. So when he returned permanently to Thailand. After all his studies and everything, he became his first jazz group, which was called Lake Kram, uh, whom he jazz, you know, like he he played jazz with and everything. Um, and he also started a his own radio station at the palace. Um, as the years went on, the brand grew bigger. It was la- later named um, Ao Sao Wan Suk Band. And they would perform on Friday evenings on the radio and would often take uh, radio requests by people. What was his, his instrument? The piano? No, it was a saxophone. Ah. Yeah, yeah. So 
I don't want to make I don't want to compare him, but it was kind of like uh same kind of like Bill Clinton kind of thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know see. what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah, no, but his main his main instrument was the saxophone, and he and he basically played all of them. Like he played alto, he played soprano. I think he was more fond of the the alto. It was the alto or the soprano. I can't remember. Uh, but he played all of them. He played tenor and berry and yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, they performed it at universities and composed a lot of the anthems. Um, composed anthems for were uh, Chula Lancorn, uh, Tamasat University, and Cassette Sart University. I'm guessing that's what they are. Okay, so many bands such as uh, the Les Brown and his... Um, Okay, so correct me because I'm not. I'm actually not sure if this is what it's called. But um, so I wrote it down. It says Les Les Brown and his band of renown. Well, see, like I, the name Les Brown sounds familiar, but I, I couldn't tell you more than that. The Claude Volley Big Band, which was, I believe, it was a French band. I don't know. Uh, like I said, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. So all of these bands recorded compositions of his um, at some point and can still be heard in Thailand. Well, that was that, that part was a mess. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, in 1964, the king became the, thir- the 23rd person to receive the a certificate of yeah the certificate of bestowal of honorary membership uh, on behalf of the of Vienna's University of Music and Performing Arts. Um, in 2000, he was awarded the Sanford Medal for his contribution of music from the Yale School of Music. He was the first Asian in both of the cases, um, both in uh, the Vienna University and Yale, uh, to receive um, any honorary title. And I thought this was the most interesting one. Um, in 2003, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from the School of the University of North Texas. Oh. Which is oh. Tony's alma mater. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Too bad he wasn't here, because I could have told him that. Well, I mean, I guess he'll hear it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but... um. So, yeah, you know, so... Thought you were gonna say uh, Berkeley. I was like, it's probably gonna be Berkeley. Oh no 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 no! I I thought it was interesting because, like I said, because because Tony went there. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> um and yeah so um so just to so just to end it um like I said he did he did a lot of things a lot of things that I probably can't cover here a lot but um. Renaissance man. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and he ruled, and I think he's, technically he's still considered the longest ruler, ruling person, or, yeah. come on. Yeah, so, like, he's the long, the, the longest um, ruling um, king. Hold on, I'll figure it out. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, so, just to end it, I guess, um, so, King Bumipom died um, in the hospital in October 13th, 2016. And he was 88 at the time. It was really recent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he had a royal cremation that took over five days in the end of October. Um, and 
the entire the entire country went you know into mourning for those five days and everybody had to wear black i believe um but but yeah no but like i said he and, and when i say he was like loved by the people like he was loved by the people like um like people i mean people like cried like when he died um and like people still remember him to this day like i know it's been i know it's only been like maybe three years but people will still like post things about him like either i it might either be his birthday or the day that he died i don't know i don't I'm, i'm not really sure but yeah like they still do that like even like on social media and everything and i guess i just wanted to end it with this quote that he had and it just had to deal with music um like what he thought of music i guess um quote you cannot you cannot take it back like we cannot make it disappear if it were if it were a painting that was painted 20 years ago when we look at it again we might see that the colors have peeled that it might need restoration the color may have changed but the colors of music never change end quote yeah and so yeah that was that was uh my report on king boomy palm adulia day i mean you're doing great with the names <laughs> well they're so, complicated to us or for us well I, I i will have a disclaimer on it um so recently and as recently like it was months ago um um uh, so me and my boyfriend have actually gotten to <laughs> It started off one night where we like started watching like some Thai series on Netflix, and ever since then we've just been watching that. Like with subtitles. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. And you get the uh, pronunciations from it. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, not from there specifically, but yeah, I mean, I can kind of un- get um how you would say in some of the names, but yeah. Um, <laughs> what series is this? Um, I mean, it's a. I mean, it's not just one series. Like we've been watching different ones, like different ones, like throughout. Um, so so yeah. Um, what's it called? But it just started off one day that we just didn't have anything to watch, and we were just like, oh, you know what? Let's watch this, and so we did. Anyway. Is there any um a characteristic to his music specific? Um, I don't think so. Um, it's, I think it's like what we were talking about the, um, for years about nationalistic things. Um, there's, I don't think it's any like anything like that. I think it's a very, they're just very Western compositions. I just note that they're very, they're just very, um, because I mean, like I said, he's he was he studied, I guess, in the Western method. Yeah. So I feel like that would make more sense for him to like for that to be his um inspiration but yeah like i mean there's like a whole list on like on wikipedia of like his compositions and everything when you told me earlier about what you were going to talk about i right away thought of i mean obviously they're not even in the same region but for some reason i had this notion that there's a musician from ethiopia oh that's another country that was never conquered ethiopia yeah Ah, well, there we go. Maybe there's some... <laughs> Connections. Links in there, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, 
That guy is also a jazz uh, player, but his instrument is a, a vibraphone. But the, um, when he composes, like he composes more through through modes than than chords. Mm. So he'll use, you know, certain certain modes, but uh, modes that sound more. Um, well, Eastern or Middle Eastern. And yeah. Not not as in, I guess not as in the European modes. Um, they have, uh, for example, like what we know as the Phrygian scale, right? Yeah. Like within that, within that mode, there are more modes depending on which notes you you change. Mm-hmm. So they all have like that same uh, flavor, but it's just uh, it it just changes by again which pitches you you mess around with. But I thought it was gonna be more like that. For some reason, I had that that idea. Yeah, no, I feel like <laughs> I feel like I, if I was gonna go with something Eastern, I probably should have gone with more uh, more Eastern. So go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Art of Whatevs. And, um, yeah, listen to us on, you know, on iTunes and just, like, comment and subscribe and, and, and rate on there because, I mean, it'd be nice to just have, like, those things. Um, and not even just for the numbers, but just also for feedback because, like, I want to know what people think, whether it's positive or negative whatever like i don't yeah i don't care <laughs> yeah um but yeah um like i said just follow us on instagram and twitter and yeah just like i said just let us know and um i think like we said before like it'd be cool to just like have uh other, like people suggest things because i mean that's also that's all that would also be cool I think we it'd be cool to have suggestions. Yeah, to uh, keep uh, keep us varied on what we talk about. Because right now, like I, like I said, I've just been concentrating on musicians. Yeah. And I still haven't stepped out of you know I, I guess my comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, no, but I think, but like I said before, I mean, it's just, it's just. It's just what we know, and um, um, and that's okay. But that's why that's why it's good to have like other perspectives on it, anyway. But yeah, so like I said, thanks again for listening, y'all. Um, we really appreciate it, uh, and you know, just it's just nice, I guess, to just be able to just do this because I, I mean, I enjoy doing it. <clears throat> yeah it's fun yeah yeah but like i said thanks again y'all thanks for listening and we'll see you later thanks see you later thanks bye <laughs>